Good evening, church. Here we are again, restricted to online services for another couple of weeks, as we've been mentioning. Definitely not the ideal situation, definitely not a good situation to be in. Of course, we want to gather together in person to worship the Lord and to sit at the Lord's feet as we hear from the Word, but uh, we should be praying, church. We should be praying more that our our political leaders, or the, the leaders of our governments, would start to manage and start to make decisions based on the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man or even the fear of this pandemic. We should also be praying for those who are sick, who are affected by this virus. There, is, there are members of our church who have family members who, are, who are, have been impacted by this virus that we should be surrounding in love and in prayer throughout this time. So I, I, I ask you, church, to keep our, our, our governments, our leaders in prayer, our church in prayer, as we continue to navigate this season in this pandemic. Again, this is not the ideal situation, but I'm thankful for what the team is doing to uh, cultivate or continue to cultivate that community in our church, and, and we have this virtual fellowship, so please check that out. I'm going to try to get on that as well, uh, so I'll, I'll hopefully we'll be able to see you there. On another note, I want to personally and publicly thank our pastor, uh, Joshua, who uh, stepped in last week and preached, us, uh, preached to us from the Word. I, I was very thankful and grateful for uh, his last-minute uh, willingness to come to uh, the pulpit and preach to us. He brought a little bit of Pentecostal fire uh, in our Baptist church, uh, but I praise God for him nonetheless, and, and, and of course we love him. Uh, I wish we were here last week to worship in person for our, our last service before this whole shutdown situation, but as Elder Joel mentioned last week, my family and I had uh, potentially been in contact with someone who had a confirmed case of COVID, and so we wanted to take all the precautionary, precautionary measures and stay home so that we wouldn't uh, infect anyone, so to speak. Uh, but we did the test, and of course, uh, the, the results came back negative, so praise God for that. By His grace, that was the case. That's All of that to say, that's why we weren't here last week. But now we're back, and I'm back, and we're going to jump back into our studying the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please, and you should because you're at home now, there's no excuse for you. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we are finally breaking in to the second chapter of John after weeks in chapter 1. John chapter 2, we're going to be reading from verse 1 to 12. Please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted 
tasted the water and now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we declare your holiness, Lord. We declare your praises, O Lord, that we are able to meet and gather and sing praises that are received by you this evening. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we get to sit at your feet and our hearts be open and our minds be open to your truth, to your word, and that we might be able to understand, God. We know that it's all by your grace. And so, God, we give you glory and praise. We give you thanks, O Lord, that despite uh, our current online situation and everything that else is going on in the world with the pandemic, Lord, that we are able to still meet and worship you, to have a joy, to have a peace that passes all understanding, despite the world around us. God, we pray for our country. We pray for our government leaders, that, Lord, that they would have the fear of you, that they would make decisions based on your word and guided by your spirit for the good of, of the church and the good of the people of the land. We pray for those who are sick, who are struggling with COVID, who have been impacted by this pandemic. Even if it's not the virus, but maybe it's a job situation, God, we ask for your hand of mercy upon their lives. We ask for healing for those who are sick. We ask for open doors for those who have lost jobs. We ask for comfort for those who are mourning and grieving, oh Lord. We ask for your spirit to abide in our land. Oh God. Lord, we ask that even as we come to you this evening, that as, as prayed already, that our hearts would be good soil, that we, you would hear from you, oh Lord, that we would be convicted and that life change would take place. I pray, oh God, that you would use me as your instrument of peace once again, oh Lord. I pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Tell someone, message someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Wedding and the Wine. The Wedding and the Wine. Oh, I'm a little surprised of the worship team here tonight. They're a little lively. It's probably that Pentecostal fire that Pastor Joshua brought last week. Uh, just by way of recap, let's recall the purpose of John's gospel, and hopefully you've already ingrained in your minds this verse that we've been referring to throughout this series. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we mentioned before, the gospel, this gospel of John was written in a way uh, to be evangelistic, reaching out to unbelievers so that they might believe in Christ. This gospel was also written in a, in a way, in a, as well as in an apologetic way, defending the claims of Christ's divinity and his claims to messiahship. 
So, so, so far in our study, we've gone through John's opening statement about the gospel and the divinity of Christ. If you remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John says. He alludes to the state of creation, how the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He talks about why Christ came, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. All of this pointing to this great and grand picture of God's salvific plan and work in humanity through His Son, through the Word of God who came in human flesh and making a way to the Father. John then moves from this opening statement of the gospel and goes to his first more, most credible witness to these things, John the Baptist. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. From John the Baptist, and he moved to his secondary witnesses to these things, the, the first disciples, John and Andrew, then Peter and James, and Philip and Nathaniel. He is establishing a line of witnesses who can testify to the Messiahship and the divinity of Christ. Now what happens next, beginning in our passage, is John begins to present to us, his readers, evidence that would further prove the claims of Jesus, and he does this by recalling the first signs, the first sign that Jesus performs in his three-year ministry here on this earth. Note that I said the word sign rather than miracle, because this is the language that John was using. Go to verse 11 of our passage tonight. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. I want to make this distinction very clearly because these signs that we'll be talking about throughout our study, these miracles, so to speak, are, are, though they are miracles, not every miracle is a sign per se. A sign in reference to what John is talking about here in the Greek is semion, which means something that confirms and authenticates the identity of Christ as well as his purpose, as we'll see in our passage tonight. Go back to John's thesis again for his gospel, but let's take a step back, a verse back, John chapter 20, verse 30, verse 31. It says, now Jesus did many other things signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these specific signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John has specific signs in mind with the miracles of Christ that he mentions in his, in his gospel. And, and these, again, these signs are meant to point to the divinity of Christ, evidence for his messiahship. They were not just the displays of power. In fact, we know that John is very intentional and specific with the signs that he records because he only records seven of them throughout his gospel. There are a bunch of minor signs or a bunch of minor displays of Christ's power throughout the gospel of John, but, all, but a majority of them, the, the main signs, there are only seven of them, not including his resurrection. These seven signs, are, as we'll see throughout this study, is, uh, is the healing of a nobleman's son in John chapter 4, healing a lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, walking on water and calming the storm also in John chapter 6, healing a, a man that was born blind in John chapter 9, and of course, raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. 
seven signs that John talks about, that he writes about, that specifically points to the divinity of Christ. Again, each of these seven signs are meant to confirm and authenticate Christ's claims. And so tonight I want to unpack this passage for us, this first sign that, uh, that, w- that we are going to be looking at, the first sign that, that John writes about, and why this miracle, why this wedding at Cana and, and, and this wine miracle points to the divinity of Christ and why it ought, us to, why it ought to get us to believe in Christ some more. My hope is that by uncovering the truths behind this first sign by Christ, that we would be encouraged by the identity of the one that we follow and call Lord and Savior. And that if we have yet to fully surrender and entrust our lives into his mighty hands, that we would find reason to do so tonight. I also have some application and stuff at the end, so stick around for that. But my main desire, church, is that by studying this and unpacking this and revealing the identity of Christ and his messiahship and his, identi- his, his divinity, that we would once again fully trust him with our lives, especially with everything that's going around us today. So without further delay, let's jump into our passage. Everyone, I guess, maybe not say, you can message it in the chat room. Everyone say, jump. Oof, it's alive in this church tonight. Is this the right church? Whatever. Our passage begins with, on the third day, at the top of our passage, chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So if you remember back in chapter 1, John's narrative starts with John the Baptist, and everything that follows uh, after that happens in the course of a week. First day, John the Baptist is talking to a bunch of Levites and priests. The next day, Jesus comes walking by. The next day after that, John tells two of his disciples to start following Jesus. The next day after that, Jesus calls the rest of his first disciples, uh, Philip and Nathaniel, on his way to Galilee. So this wedding takes place within that same week. And the reason why Jesus was going to Galilee in the first place was to go to this wedding. John also tells us that this wedding in Cana is actually where Nathaniel is from, Philip's friend. This passage goes on to say, our passage goes on to say, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, some historical and geographical context to this passage. Cana was actually about just 10 kilometers northeast from the town of Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. If you Google Maps it, you can actually see that it takes about three hours to walk from Nazareth to Cana, and about 20 minutes if you have a car. Now, back in Jesus' day, these two cities would have been more like small towns or small villages with probably less than 100 people living in them. So a wedding like this would have, had, would have been a big deal. Most of the residents between these two towns would have been related to each other some way. Maybe, you know, long-distant relationships, you know, twice removed, all of that. Hence why Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus himself was invited to this wedding in this other town. This was a family affair. We even read at the end of our passage how Jesus' brothers and even possibly his sisters were also there at the wedding. It says in verse 12, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So this was a big event. 
Jewish weddings traditionally took place over a course of a week. Uh, and again, everybody in both these small towns were probably invited. This was a big wedding. But then a problem occurs, as our passage tells us. In verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. They have no wine. Now, understand that in Jewish wedding customs, this was a disastrous thing on multiple levels. On one hand, wine represented blessings and celebration, the flourishment of the wedding couple. So imagine what it would say if, if not even a day into their marriage, the wine has already run out. The wine has already run dry. In addition to that, part of the wedding ceremony requires that after the betrothal of the couple, the bridegroom is meant to go and prepare a house for his bride. He had to go and make sure that everything was in order. All his finances, his entire house was in order before he picked up his bride and brought her home. The wine running out would have been symbolic that the groom was not ready. That the, groom was not, that the groom's house was not in order. Basically being unqualified to be married. Now, on a more practical level, why this is, this is a disastrous thing, running out of wine, wine was not a luxury back in ancient times. In fact, wine was more so a necessity. Water was impure. So they had to mix wine with every drink to have something even remotely drinkable. Now, all of that to say, we'll talk more about that later, running out of wine was really bad. So Mary goes to Jesus and tells him that they have no more wine. Now, I've heard some people say that Mary went to Jesus because she knew he could perform a miracle. But I would argue, how would she know that if this is Jesus' first public miracle? She would have no reason to think that her son would perform a miracle here. What's more, what's more likely happening here is that by this time, Jesus was the man of the house, so to speak. Historians agree that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, had already died at this point, and so the responsibility to take care of the mother, Mary, fell on Jesus, the firstborn. So I think what is more likely happening here in our, in, our, in our story is that Mary is turning to the person that she has relied on ever since her husband passed away, her firstborn son, Jesus. Please hear me. This is not some spiritual insight that Mary had about Jesus and his ministry and, and his divinity. In fact, the next verse even speaks to that. It's in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? This, by the way, is not Jesus being rude. He's not saying, woman, please, right? It's, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're going to get a slipper if you say that to your mom. It doesn't matter, right? This is more likely, in our, in our language, Jesus is saying, ma'am or madam, right? This is Jesus saying, madam, what does this have to do with me? And this is a clear expression of ignorance that was being addressed here. Jesus was questioning his mother in a respectful way, if she understood why he was there in the first place. Jesus, Jesus even adds after that, my hour has not yet come. This is to say, you don't know, you don't know this, but my time has not begun yet. My, my salvific work and ministry has not yet started. What, is that? what does this have to do with me? All of this to say, 
Mary did not possess any special insight or position or sway over Jesus like many Catholic doctrines profess. Aside from papal tradition, the majority of Mariology, the doctrine of Mary, finds its source in this passage by twisting it. Why do Catholics pray to Mary? Because look at this passage. Whenever Mary asks Jesus for something, he cannot resist her. That's why pray to Mary, according to Catholic doctrine. This is where they get that from. But the reality is, he did resist her. He even questioned her. And though Jesus performs this miracle in the end, remember, it's a sign to point to his divinity, to point to his glory, not Mary's. If she had any. You even have Mary say after this in verse 5, and and I love this. She says, uh, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So even Mary is pointing everyone to Jesus, not herself. If the Lord permits down the road, maybe we'll have a whole sermon on, on Mariology, and, but for now, we'll move on. <coughs> Ooh, getting excited here. Um, verse 6 of our passage. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. There's not too much to say about this except that the jars were made out of stone because the stone kept the water from being impure, right? And it, it kept the water free of sediments, unlike a clay pot or an animal skin. Each pot held about 20 to 30 gallons, so when the water was turned to wine, someone did the calculation of this actually, it comes up to about 500 bottles of wine that evening at that wedding. Talk about a party, right? Not that I would know anything about that, but uh, in verse 7 it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I'll talk more about this later. But verse 8, it says, And he said to to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was would have been sort of like a a paid MC, someone who led the prayers, who who made sure the wine was flowing, made sure that everyone was having a good time. So they took it, verse 9, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now remember, remember where the shame would fall on if the wine ran out. Remember where, where, where all, 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 the, all the, the, the looks would glare to if, if the party was a disaster. It would fall to the groom. Again, speaking towards his unpreparedness, him being un, unqualified to be a groom or uh, uh, to be married. So, he goes on to say, verse 10, <coughs> and, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the oldest trick in the book, right? You serve the best wine first, and once the guest starts to uh, drink too much, and they've lost taste, and they start to uh, no longer can tell what they're drinking, you then serve the cheap wine, you know, the, the no-name brands of the stuff that comes out of a box, if you know what I'm talking about. But this feast master says that this wine that Jesus just made is even better than the first brand, than the, the, the first um, jugs of wine that they had that night. I mean, of course it was. It was straight from the Creator. Our passage concludes with saying, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. 
Give me a second. This won't turn to wine, but. <clears throat> Not Jesus. <clears throat> this is what happens when you don't preach after a week. You know, you start to lose your voice. Uh, our passage concludes with saying this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In verse 12 it says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. Now, just a side note about our passage. I love this because this first sign that Jesus performs is in front of his family. It's like as if he wants his family, his brothers, who, who maybe at this time don't know that he's the son of God and don't know what his ministry is about. He performs these miracles so that they would believe first. That's great. Now, what is this, what is, what is this miracle a sign of? So very quickly, then some application here. Number one, this was a sign of his divinity. This was a sign of Jesus' divinity. Some context to fully understand this, the process of winemaking in ancient times was less refined back then, unlike today. I had a whole week, by the way, of researching and looking up how they made wine in ancient Israel, so I'm more like a Jewish wine connoisseur now. Um, if, you, if, you want, if anyone's getting married and you want some wine suggestions, you know, or bar mitzvah, I don't know. Uh, the main difference in winemaking back in ancient Israel was that it was watered down a lot, right? As mentioned before, wine was more of a necessity rather than a luxury back in those days. There was no drinkable water, so they had to mix water with fermented wine because the alcohol would purify the bacteria in the water. You would basically have to drink a lot to get drunk. It was even considered barbaric if you didn't mix wine with water. The Jews thought that only heathens or barbarians drank wine straight without water. They knew from scripture that it was a sin to get drunk, shameful to do so. So they diluted the wine with enough water to prevent themselves from getting drunk, from, uh, prevent themselves from, uh, from that happening. And because even women and children had to drink this wine, wine was watered down even more, so it became more like grape juice for women and children. So depending on who was drinking it, the ratio of wine and water came up to be about one part to three parts water, or one part wine to ten parts uh, water if you're, a, if you're a woman or a child. Now with that said, back to our passage, how much water did Jesus tell the servants to fill the stone jars with? Verse 7, or a passage says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled it up to the brim. The servants filled the jars with water to max capacity, leaving no room to mix fermented wine in. See, anyone could have made water into wine back in those days if, 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 if they wanted to. They would just need to fill one of these jars up, up about, to about a tenth from being full, and a little bit of wine mix it up, and then, of course, you have diluted wine, and it would be fine to serve. It would still be considered wine. But what Jesus does instead is that he makes it that, so that there is no possible way that human hands could imitate his work. He made it so that it would require making wine out of nothing. No grapes to press for juice, no time to ferment the grapes, and no space in the jars to mix it in with the water. 
Jesus eliminates matter, time, and space, the three fundamental principles of our universe to perform this miracle. Listen, only God could do that. Only God could make something out of nothing. Remember John's claims at the very beginning of his gospel. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was nothing, anything made that was made. Creating wine out of jars full of water was a sign of his power to create something out of nothing. This was a sign of his divinity. Secondly, this was a sign of his design, a sign of his design. It was no coincidence that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding. This is to demonstrate the value that God puts on the covenant made between a man and a woman in marriage. You know, I've heard Christians argue that, uh, who, who, who advocate for same-sex marriages say that because Jesus doesn't say or condemn homosexual marriage, it must be okay. Well, no. The condemnation of homosexual relationships or marriage was not necessary by Jesus because it was already given or understood that it was a sin. Why would he need to condemn it when their argument was already over? When it was already settled. And if you want evidence of that, you have the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah that says that God considers it as sin. And in case you were wondering, if you read Genesis 18, it was the pre-incarnate Christ who destroyed those cities. And what we see even more is that Jesus affirms heterosexual marriage instead, all throughout the Gospels, and in this passage in particular. Why? Because marriage between man and a woman is meant to be a holy covenant that represents and reflects the covenant that Christ was making with his bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So by ensuring that this wedding that he attended was not spoiled by the lack of wine, Jesus was ultimately preserving the image that would come to represent his own union with his bride, the church. Remember where the responsibility of the wedding, the, the marriage, fell to. It was the bridegroom. Really, it was the bridegroom's day to show that he was able to support and provide for this wife as mandated by God, as God has entrusted to him. So the focus was on the groom. So sorry, ladies who, who might be getting married sometime soon, right? That day, your wedding day, is not about you. Probably got a whole bunch of hate mail after this, like, Pastor Ian, what do you mean it's not about me? Listen, ladies, you got... You, you got your wedding day backward, right? It, backwards. It's, it's not about you and your floral selections or how great your hair looks like and your makeup and, you know, how pretty your wedding dress looks like, as pretty as it might be. Even that, really, the, the, the white wedding dress is symbolic of your groom's efforts to keep you pure and unstained from sin, it is meant to be evidence of the work and the effort that your man put in to keep you holy and pure until your wedding day. So it's not really about you. I mean, maybe now it is. It's about you. But in ancient times, it was about the bridegroom and his work 
to bring about this marriage. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, this is depicting the whole white wedding dress scene. All of this to say, Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding to demonstrate, to illustrate the design of, of intimate and personal and covenantal relationship that he came to earth to provide. The wedding was a foreshadow of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19, the feast where the Savior celebrates once he returns and establishes his new kingdom with his bride, the church. The miracle was a sign of his design. Now, this illustration of marriage cannot be complete without the wine because, lastly, this was a sign of his destination. This was a sign of his destination. See, to the Jews, wine symbolized sustenance and life, the flourishing of the people, and uh, uh, an age that the Messiah was meant to bring. One of the oldest messianic prophecies is actually from Jacob, one of the, the forefathers of Israel, right, uh, that he gives to his son Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 to 11, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And verse 11 says, Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This imagery denotes an abundance of wine and grapes during the reign of the king who would descend from the tribe of Judah. This, of course, being the Messiah. But it also foreshadows the price by which these blessings would come. It says that he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. See, wine was dualistic in its, in, in its symbolism in ancient times. It was symbolic, not just for the celebrations and the flourishments of life, but its bitterness was also symbolic for the bitterness of life, the sorrow, the hardships of life. Furthermore, uh, wine was often used as a metaphor for blood because of its color. Now, with that in mind, it's interesting to note that this wedding in Cana was only completed, only saved by Christ providing wine that he alone could provide. So this, this miraculous wine that he could only bring. Without it, the whole celebration would be ruined. It's also interesting to note that these stone jars that were used to contain the, this, this miraculous wine was used for purification rites. Purification rites that was meant to wash individuals, in, again, the Jewish purification rites, from impurities. And I hope you're connecting dots here, but this first miracle was a sign of Christ's destination to the cross, where he would shed his own blood for the remission and forgiveness of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This was a sign of the work that Jesus would complete on the cross in order to purify and cleanse his bride, the church. That, so that, that's you and me, so that we would be in a covenantal relationship with him. Again, all of it being established by his blood. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 
to 22, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verse 21, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, just like Christ's first miracle in turning the water into wine, and this first sign that points to his divinity, it illustrates where he was going to do, or what he was going to do on the cross, making a way for us to be purified, and making a way for, our, for our, this covenantal relationship to be celebrated amongst us. Now, to top all of that, what I found so interesting during my research is that Jewish weddings, the rabbi would bless a cup of wine, then give it to the bridegroom to drink first, symbolizing him taking onto himself the bitterness of life, the sorrows, the hardships, the pain. Then the bridegroom would then give that cup of wine to his bride to drink, symbolizing the second sip, which it contains not the bitterness of life, but rather the joy and the sweetness and the celebrations of life. I find this so amazing because in a way, it illustrates what Christ has done. Where, again, all of this pointing to the destination of Christ on the cross, how he himself took on the bitterness of the cup of the wrath of God so that we, the church, his bride, may only drink from the sweetness and the joyous parts of the cup that, that God has to offer. This was the first miracle that Christ uh, performed. Again, a sign of his divinity, of his, of his design, of his destination. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we uh, close tonight. Let me give you some practical stuff here as we do. What do we get from all of this? So everything that we just talked about here. These signs of uh, the wedding and the wine and all this metaphor and these symbolism. Here's the first thing we need to understand, church. Whoever, and, or whoever you are that's listening to my voice. Listen, God is able. God is able. If Jesus cares enough to address the wine shortage at a wedding, why wouldn't he care about the shortages in your life? Maybe you, you, you have a shortage on hope or faith or peace in these trying times. If Christ is, cares enough to address the wine shortage at a wedding, why wouldn't he care about the shortages in your life? But you might be thinking, things can't possibly change. My life is full of, of, of sin or, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's full of sorrow. I, I, I'm lost in, in my emotions and anxiety. It's full of these negative things. It can't possibly change. Listen, you may be in a place where it's full to the brim with problems and heartaches and anxiety and sin and depression and hopelessness and restlessness. 
You may think that there is no room for God to work, to accomplish, to act, to provide, to help, to give hope. But we serve a God that is able, who can make jars full of water into wine. He who, who can, we serve a God who can make something out of our nothings. So it does not matter the direness of your situation this evening. What shortage you might have or, or the fullness of, of, of hardships that you might be experiencing, God is able to work. God is able to make something out of your nothings. Secondly, what we can learn from this passage is that God desires relationship. Again, this is the whole reason why he performed this first sign at a wedding. Because this is the kind of relationship that he desires with us. An intimate, a personal, a covenantal relationship, one that he alone can provide for, one that he alone sets up for. He is the perfect bridegroom. He is the one who is going to keep us unblemished and unstained and preserve us to the end. And again, all of this is made possible him being able to do things in our lives and him being able to, to, to reconcile a right relationship with us, all of this is possible because God has made a way through Jesus Christ, through the blood of Christ. Again, because Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God into himself, he now offers us the cup of blessing cup of joy, the cup of peace, the cup of celebration, all because his blood, his blood paid for the way. So the invitation stands. It says in Revelation 19, the, the passage that we spoke about earlier, the, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great and joyous day, it says in Revelation 19 verse 7, it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen, for the fine linen is her righteous deeds of the saints. And in verse 9 it says, An angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper said to me, these are the true words of God. And listen, that invitation is here for you. That invitation to put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ is here for you. That invitation that invites us not to put our faith no longer in our dead works, in our good efforts, in our, in our family background, in our cultural backgrounds, the invitation is there to, to put our faith and trust instead on Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, the one who preserves us, the one who, who goes and makes a place for us, the one who has paid 
or the relationship that he offers us. So if you're, if you're hearing this all for the first time, I ask you now to just put your trust and your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're a long-time churchgoer and you've been experiencing these struggles, again, I, I ask you to recall once again our Lord Jesus Christ who has made a way despite the, there not being a way. Jesus Christ who, who has performed this great miraculous work of salvation communicating and, and showing his grace and love to us despite us being sinners to mind our Savior, the bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ, gracious God and Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, for making a way for us despite us being unworthy, despite us being in our sin. Thank you that you demonstrated your love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made that way. He shed his blood for a bride that was sinful and unworthy. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and faithful. It is you that preserves us and keeps us to the very end until we celebrate you in the marriage supper of the Lamb. God, we give you the glory, and I pray for forgiveness where we have fallen short, where we have put our trust in the things of this world, where we have put our trust in false idols and gods, where we have put our trust in our own works, in our own efforts, in our own strength. God, forgive us. I pray that you would help our unbelief. I pray, oh God, that you would Turn to us the joy of our salvation. That you would preserve us and purify us once again. That we might be presented before you once again unblemished. Unblemished and pure because of your blood that washes us clean. So we praise you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name. Thank you.